Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. I am your host, Benjamin Phillips, and this is our podcast discussing 25 of our favourite movies of any given decade. This is Volume 3, our podcast discussing movies of the 90s. So we're covering 1990 to 1999 in cinema. This is episode 55, and we are, of course, discussing 1992's Death Becomes Her from director Robert Zemeckis. Matt, how are you doing in this stupidly hot day? Yeah. In our houses built like ovens. Yeah, pretty warm. Um, got through that intro just about. <laughs> just about. <laughs> just I'm about. editing it, so. I was going to say, you, you struggle with the heat there, buddy. Yeah, uh, my, my work calendar is hellish and it's hot and I don't like any of that. But, you know, we're having a good time. This is a good podcast, finally. It took us three volumes, but I, I think this is now an actually good podcast. We'll see if we can keep that going after. We'll, we'll get to, like, we'll get, like, our first nomination for, like, an actual podcast award with episode 100. And we're right. Like, out. <laughs> yeah, the tentative plan is 100 and we're out, but I don't know what happens then. We just go back around. Jeez. Here's how bad we fucked up in the 2000s. Let's redo it. <laughs> I mean, we already did a, a bonus round and... Alright, you know, yeah, we'll go back around. That's the basis. That's 10 movies. We need 15 more from the 2000s. Yeah. This was all the test podcast. When we launched the real one with our practiced opinions. I'm going to exactly. make it sound so much like I really enjoy both Boyhood and Florida Project. Both, um, both me picks. Yeah. Speaking uh, of... Speaking of, this is a me pick, hence why I'm talking about this movie at the top of the episode rather than Matt. Yeah, I mean, so I, tail end of last year, watched every single Robert Zemeckis movie. Uh-huh. So I like literally watched them in order, watched them in the context themselves, mm-hmm. and I'm sure there are people who are looking at it going like, why is this not Forrest Gump? Now, I didn't want to fight you over this, because there are other things on here that I knew we would have to fight over. I would like to come forth and say I am one of those people. Why isn't this Forrest Gump? Why isn't this Forrest Gump? is... Okay, Forrest Gump is a fine movie, uh-huh. with a very good Tom Hanks performance at the centre of it. Yes. It is also basically boomer propaganda, and watching it, like... At this point, probably uh, nine months ago, I was sat there and was just kind of going, this movie is so weird and kind of politically toxic that I, like, it still does do some emotional stuff, but it's also mm-hmm. just got all these, like, really weird things that just do not stack up. It very much is a nostalgic piece from someone who is obviously looking at it and kind of going, like, well, it, it, it kind of is and it isn't. Like, it, it feels like it's nostalgic for a bygone time in American history. But also, the, there's this weird undercurrent of the entire movie going, like, and then someone died. Like, they were assassinated in public. And it's it's such a bizarre movie with so many, like, fucking wild choices. And I don't think as many of them land as you would expect from a movie that ultimately wins Best Picture. Counterpoint, he meets two presidents and invents the phrase, shit happens. <laughs> I mean, nobody in Death Becomes Her does that. Both films no. linked by Elvis, weirdly, but um... yes, Elvis is in Elvis is in both movies. But that's the thing. Like that's the thing is watching this again. This, I mean, this isn't my favorite '90s Zemeckis. My favorite '90s Zemeckis is Contact. Okay, but... <laughs> my my follow up question to why isn't this Forrest Gump was why isn't this Contact? I would actually put Death Becomes Her third. But that's third out of three movies I like, so I'm not here well, to you, like. You, you would you would put it fourth because I imagine you probably like Back to the Future Part Three more than this as well. I haven't seen Back to the Future Three in a very long time, but my memory is that's the bad one. But then you watched it recently, and your partner really liked it, so maybe I'm due a Back to the Future Three rewatch. I don't know. I mean, but... I mean, so my Zemeckis ranking is just for those curious. <laughs> Everyone, I'll, I'll, sub podcast, the show within the show. 
I'll only do top 11 to basically get oh through. God, okay. Who Framed Roger Rabbit number one? An absolute masterpiece. Back to the Future number two. Really? What? Really? Over number one? Yeah. Oh, no, wait. Framed... Sorry. I thought you were saying Back to the Future 2. No, oh, no, no. Back, right. to the future, back to the Future number two. <sighs> At number two. Right. Yep. Fine. With you. Fine. Number three, Contact. Yeah. Number four, Death Becomes Her. Uh-huh. Number five, Cast Away. Uh-huh. Number six, I Want to Hold Your Hand, the Beatles movie he did, which no one's seen, but it's actually really, really good. Uh-huh. Back to the Future Part 3. Uh-huh. Romancing the Stone. Uh-huh. Back to the Future Part 2. Uh-huh. Beowulf. Right. And then Forrest Gump at number 11. And then uh-huh. the everything everyone hates, like The Walk, which is Polar Express, Welcome to Marwin, like the, the genuinely tragic movies he starts making towards the end of his career. Please, my wire, it will hurt people. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm one of the people that's seen The Walk. Okay. What a bizarre movie that is. Yes. This is not our, that is not our podcast. This is our Death Becomes Her episode, which is, I also think, a really interesting point in almost everyone involved in this movie's career. Yes. Which is another reason why I think it's really fascinating to talk about. Because this is, to finish this kind of like underlying point on Zemeckis' career, this is his last comedy movie, really. Yeah. Like after this, he fully transitions over into making Oscar dramas. Like His next three movies are Forrest Gump, Cast Away, Contact, uh, What Lies Beneath as well. So like very much going for like Oscar, Oscar-baiting movies. And this is very much not that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very, very camp, uh, in a good way. Yeah, it's... I I would say of the th- things that impress me most about it, and there are quite a few things to be impressed with about it, um, which will probably dominate about a third of the conversation, how they got Bruce Willis to really commit to this, because he is a <laughs> notorious grump, he is a notorious, doesn't try that hard, and uh, yeah, he's in this. <laughs> he's fully just playing... This sad sap of a man who is very melodramatic. The scream he lets out <laughs> when she shoots her. I I assume that was his real scream, but if not, still very funny. Um, yes. And I don't know how they got him to do it, but he did it. <laughs> I I, mean, I really love Bruce Willis in this movie. My, my hottest take for this movie is Bruce Willis hot in this movie. So here's the other one. The idea that these women would fight over this man is pretty funny. Although, of course, very obviously, it's not about him. But it comes back around on this idea that, like, imagine telling people who didn't know that Bruce Willis was a fucking sex symbol in the 90s and the late 80s, you know? Like, like one of the most desirable men in the world. And here he is, <laughs> like... Like yeah. the, 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 the they miss mustache in the world, mm-hmm. like an awful comb of it's it's they do him up so well in this movie, and obviously so much of this movie's legacy is special effects and the makeup. Yes. Which is gonna dominate much of the discussion of this. But before we get onto that, let's do a little bit of context uh, yeah. on this movie. So as we've said, directed by Robert Zemeckis, written by Martin Donovan, who I think really hasn't done much else beyond this. Like there's a couple of like assistant director credits, there's a couple of writing credits. The interesting writer here is David Coat, who has come up quite a lot across the myriad podcasts in the real world. Um, <laughs> like he, he is a co-writer on Mission Impossible. He's a co-writer on Spider-Man. He basically becomes kind of like just a guy you bring in when you're running out of ideas for your big budget action movie. Uh, yeah, I remember this coming up when we did Secret Agent, man. Yeah. Like, I mean, because what? And so the so the other interesting part of his career is that basically the entirety of the team who worked on the special effects of this movie 
go on to do Jurassic Park a year later, yeah. which is which a huge part of this legacy. And David Kirk also wrote the screen or co-wrote the screenplay with Michael Crichton for Jurassic Park. So mm. there is so much DNA of this movie that it shares with with Jurassic Park, especially in comparison when you think that Robert Zemeckis got his first few jobs in Hollywood directing movies that Steven Spielberg was producing. Yeah. And, you know, they obviously cut away too early, but the T-Rex comes along and eats them both at the end. That's... Uh, it, that is the, the, the thing that was like, they were a little bit too over budget, to be honest, at the end. <laughs> um, uh... But yeah, and then, I mean, so cinematography by Dean Cundy, who also shoots Jurassic Park. Alan Silvestri, who is basically Zemeckis' right-hand man at this point, is doing mm-hmm. the music. Uh, the Avengers' really... own Alan Silvestri. <laughs> Yeah, the one piece of Marvel music that anyone actually knows yeah. when you know, they hear it. You know the one? Uh, That's the one. <laughs> uh, released July 31st, 1992 for a budget of $55 million, eventually topping out $149 million. So not too bad, but definitely not the heights that Zemeckis had been doing to this point, and definitely not the same level as Forrest Gump, which I believe is like still the high, maybe the highest grossing movie of his career. Yeah, um, not that huge, but... You know, for the era, pretty big, pretty big. Forrest Gump made $683 million two years later, so... That's, that's the one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, by modern standards, is probably a billion-dollar movie, so... Give me some give me some box office content. How did this movie fare in its opening weekend? Well, it did open straight up at number one, one of several new releases that weekend, including Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, Sex Offender's own Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, it opens at number one, makes $12 million its opening weekend, which puts it over Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, Mo Money, A League of Their Own, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Sister Act, BB's Kids, Boomerang, Unlawful Entry, and Universal Soldier. Uh, Batman Returns is at 11th in its seventh week, but does bear mentioning as it at this point had made $153 million, which is more than Death Becomes So will make total. Um, yeah, you know, a weird a weird uh, top ten there. I guess not a banger of a time of the year. I mean, there's, there's a review on Letterboxd that I read for this movie that basically says, Death Becomes Her, A League of Their Own, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, this might be one of the most important cinema dates for like queer cinema in history. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, I maybe I'm making myself sound silly for this, but I did not realize that uh, Death Becomes uh, is so important to that audience. <laughs> um, it's it's basically two queens fighting over mm-hmm. a man whilst looking completely fabulous. Like it, it is mm-hmm. so high camp, and it's incredible that it's made by so many straight men. <laughs> who, yeah. Like and 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 I alluded to this when we were doing our conversation beforehand. Is obviously there is an awful lot of problematic content in this movie. Yes, right, but, right from the jump. <laughs> right from the jump. But it is super fascinating that it is ultimately centered on two very strong female leads, and it, we are an era where, like, yes, obviously it's written and directed by men, but like it does feel feminine in a way. I mean, they hired Isabella Rossellini to be hot in it. But also strong, you know, some mysterious undead lady. I mean, so, so Zemeckis has a tendency to be very horny in his movies. And uh-huh. every single one of his movies has some kind of weird thing where you have to kind of cock your eye and go like, mm, really? Like, you have the whole... Marty McFly's mum, yeah. Yeah, the incest subplot. <laughs> so horny for career. him. Like, as horny as anyone in cinema has ever been is his mum. Uh, Later yeah. on in his career, he hires his wife to basically play a sex object in about six of his movies. Uh-huh. Like, 
there is a scene in Beowulf where there is like a woman who is washing a table who is played by his wife, but the shot is literally just her pendulous breasts just kind of like swaying from side to side. His wife is the uh, basis for a marionette puppet in Polar Express, which is very obviously dressed up like a prostitute. The horniest um, type of puppet. The horniest type of puppet. Like, <laughs> and that's just something like, and again, you kind of get a little bit of affection for it, where it's just like, Rob Zemeckis is a weirdly horny director, but his movies are quite sexless. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Back to the Future is a movie that, like, you can catch that in the afternoon on television and you just have to ignore the fact that his mum is so fucking horny. You know, Forrest Gump, it's like, this man is basically a child. There's a scene where he prematurely ejaculates all over his, like, long-lost crush or whatever when she's in college and all the rest of it, and it's like, cool, we're just gonna go along with this in a 12. Yep. <laughs> And she plays guitar naked in a strip club. <laughs> yeah, she does. So I really, really like this movie when uh-huh. I watched it because it is so thoroughly technically impressive for 1992. Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. Even watching even watching it the other night, I was just like, oh my God, how on earth are they doing some of the things in this movie? Like, yeah. simple things. Like, there's the scene where... Goldie Horn and Meryl Streep come into Bruce Willis's like study and they're illuminated on the wall from shadows mm-hmm. and... Goldie Hawk keeps moving around. As she does, the hole in her chest that's been blown through her just becomes more and more apparent and like less apparent. I'm like, how are they doing yeah. this? And I'm sure it's literally just they have silhouettes that look like Goldie Horn and Meryl Streep is like moving a little bit to make it look like they're doing it, but it's just like There's you know, there's a couple of bits that like I'm sure I'm sure at the time it looked even more mind blowing. There are a couple of bits that haven't aged as well, like Meryl falling down the stairs. But then there is some stuff that to this day I'm like how did you do that? <laughs> it, it's the ultimate golden age period for this kind of special effects where it's like, it's obvious that, I mean, the three directors who are really pushing at this point are Cameron, Spielberg, and Zemeckis. Mm-hmm. And all of them are doing that thing where, yes, they are relying on special effects and computer-generated imagery and all the rest of it, but they are balancing it out with a lot of practical effects to make it look even better. It's that marriage of practical with spec. It's like we can use the special to make the practical look even better, and then some people were like, what if we just made the whole thing in a computer? We can start six months before you start filming, and then when you get to the scene, you just need to hit your marks and get out there. (laughs) Hi, Marvel. And and obviously, I don't... Obviously, it's a period of cinema and where people don't like it. I mean, Meryl Streep is well known for her like distaste for how this, bored she was while shooting this. This put her right off. <laughs> yeah, she's like, yeah, I'll pretend this lampshade is, is goldy. And it's like, I know it's not goldy. The thing is, all three of them, you have to imagine they probably are shooting against a tennis ball or a lampshade or whatever it is for uh-huh. the amount of times that like they have all these shots. All of them are so committed and so good and so funny. Like, all none of them. of them give like a duh performance. I mean, I, I I think that's the point. I mean, the, we all talk about Meryl Streep can do this in her sleep, and like even when she's having a miserable time, she's giving it her all. And like even in some scenes, that if you swapped these actors for different ones, some of these scenes would be dull. But they make it work off that chemistry and that charisma, and like especially Meryl and Bruce. Um, no slight to Goldie Hawn, but somebody's got to be third in a three-person race <laughs> it's so good and like you know literally award-winning special effects so yeah so this movie wins the oscar for special effects or visual effects up against alien 3 and batman returns mm-hmm. both of which like good looking movies neither of them as technologically impressive as this whilst we're on the oscars map do you want yes. to give us some 1992 context for what what was up for the oscars in 1992 well 
you had The Crying Game. A Few Good Men. Put a pin in that. Howard's <laughs> End. Scent of a Woman. And then the winner was Unforgiven. I'm going to say that's a soft group. <laughs> it's a soft group, but I do think they give it the best movie in that group. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, we'll talk about that next week. But... <laughs> we'll talk about that next yeah, week. Yeah, I but... mean, yeah, Unforgiven wins. Clint Eastwood wins Best Director. You know, Al Pacino gets his acting award for Son of a Woman. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. nominated that year. Like, hey kids, <laughs> Iron Man didn't just pop up in, in the 2000s. That, is, that, is that for Chaplin? That is for Chaplin, yes. I mean, look, obviously this is not the high this point is... of Meryl Streep's career, but I am a little disappointed that they didn't find room for her. So this is this is an interesting point of contention, Chris. So at this point in time, Meryl Streep has been nominated for nine Academy Awards and won two. Fucking hell. <laughs> Leo can suck a dick, quite frankly. Uh, yeah, so she's won two Oscars at this point, but she's also got this stink around her that she can't do comedy. And it's a stink that exists with her uh, right up until you mm. get to Devil Wears Prada. Yeah. Would, so, you, like, call, even... would you call adaptation a, a comedy? I mean, not, but not... It's kind much. of surrealist, you know? But, yeah. but also, she isn't playing the comedy in that movie, no, is she? She, no. is, she is the more dramatic part, so... She's very funny in Little Women. <laughs> <laughs> she is, but that's the, that's the thing. It's at this point in time, people are looking at, like, oh, Meryl, you can't do comedy, stop trying. Like, what was defending your life? Just She does these sporadic attempts to try comedy, and each time she kind of gets scared back into doing more dramatic roles. Mm. Which is a shame because she's really fucking good in this. Yeah, and I, you know, I mean, maybe we've named the only three, but I think there are plenty of there's plenty of evidence that she can do comedy. I mean, like you, you get to like Mamma Mia later on yeah, in her career, yeah. and I think whilst I think Julian Juliger is not an out and out comedy, she is very she's funny. Good. In it, yeah. She is funny in it. Yeah. It's just funny to look through her stuff and go like she's still getting nominated for Best Actress like every couple of years or so. <laughs> I mean, is there an argument? Is she, is she not the greatest living actor? Like, I mean, I have, yeah. Like, I don't think there really is an argument that she is the greatest living actor. And not to say that this is her greatest performance, but like, I do just enjoy highlighting a different side to her. Like, mm-hmm. it is, it is different, and like, especially at this time, like, even from the opening of her playing this kind of over the hill songstress kind of thing, and then like, you know, tits up to her chin and, <laughs> and everything, and. Caked in makeup. Everyone being so over her as well. (laughs) It's like everyone's watching this big musical performance that she's doing and singing a song which is like kind of bad. Yeah, I was like, are we supposed to think this is bad? Is it actually bad? Is Meryl having to make it bad? (laughs) I I think I do love, because she isn't bad at singing, but I do like just kind of. It really is paid off by the fact that like people are leaving and they're going like, oh god, she's so far over the hill. How does how does she think this is a good idea? Mm. And then you get to Bruce Willis, who is so fully enraptured at this point. This, <laughs> like, like this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Right? She's magnificent, <laughs> and he's like wolf whistling at the end, and 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 or whooping. I think he's whooping, yeah. hooting and hollering. He is pressing both of those buttons on the machine. Yeah. Just like, what is going on? <laughs> Bruce Willis is so good, and this is obviously not. This is kind of more in line with the start of his career, is doing more comedic stuff. Like, because obviously Moonlighting was a comedy drama series, and when he got cast in Die Hard, everyone was like, This guy. <laughs> if you cast this guy as an action star, he's not going to be believable, especially in the context of 1980s action movies where it's Schwarzenegger and Stallone and guys who are built like a 
brick shit house. Yeah. And and you get to like the romantic lead from a hit TV show. Really, that's who we're doing. Yeah. Who, who on his best day was thin, never like muscular. You know, like yeah. But <laughs> I mean, the greatest action movie ever. Yeah, but you know, like he's he's the guy that does look who's talking and shit like that. Plus, <laughs> thing because this is still relatively early on in his career because Moonlighting's yeah. been off airways for about three years at this point. He's done two Die Hard movies, but he still isn't kind of fully doing movies full time at this point. Like Pulp Fiction's still to come. He still hasn't done Twelve Monkeys. He hasn't done The Fifth Element. He hasn't done Armageddon, Six Sense. Like there's a lot of like rope left in his career in comparison, not to say that there isn't left for Meryl Streep and Goldie Horn, but both of those have been acting in movies since the seventies. Mm. Bruce Willis has only just been on the scene in the last kind of five, 10 years or so. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> you've also got like Hudson Hawk and the last boy scout and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah. I get... It is weird to think of it being early in his career when he's got both diehards under his belt already. You know? We we erase the three diehards from the canon at this point. I mean, aren't they technically none of them diehards? Like, if you yeah. go around in the circle. <laughs> there is only one diehard movie that's an actual diehard movie, and it's the fifth one, because that's the only one that was written to be a diehard movie for an inception. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. What I a mean, weird and, and, and you, you mentioned it earlier, where Bruce Willis is renowned for being... I'm not going to act in your movie. I'm going to show up, take $2 million of showing up for one day. And so you, so he ends up nowadays in kind of, I want to say like 2012 was the last year. Mm. Like he really gave a shit because that's the year that he's got like Moonrise Kingdom and Looper and everything after that is like franchise bullshit that he's showing up for a paycheck pretty much. I'm stunned mm. that Anderson got anything out of him, but he really did. <laughs> and then... A couple of years after that, he's basically just doing like red box movies where, or direct DVD movies where he's basically just, we're filming in Eastern Europe. You can be on set for two days. You will be first build, but you will not be the lead of the movie. We'll shoot around your schedule, but you don't have to do anything other than just kind of just pit, pit, like film your pickups and whatnot. He has nine films in post production right now. <laughs> That's staggering. <laughs> and you will see none of them. Uh, no, no, like literally direct video, direct video, direct video, direct video, direct video, direct video uh, were his last releases. And then like even before that, there's several, like starting with as early as A Fire with a Fire with Fire in 2012. And then, yeah, especially from 2014 onwards. But Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like he's a man who is like probably a lot of people's like, I really love his 90s run because his 90s run is, is yeah. so fucking good. Yeah. And now he's just an actor who, like, almost impossible for you to get, like, a decent performance out of him. Like, yeah. it was kind of stunning that M. Night got him back for Glass. You watch him be in Knives Out 2 or 3. <laughs> See, I would love it, because obviously he has worked with, with Ryan Johnson before. Yeah, exactly. I, Full circle. I would love to see him come back for that. But at this point in time, I think he's just he's just done. There must be something that he's like trying to pay for. Like maybe he got done for tax evasion or something, which is why he's doing like all these stupidly expensive things. Wasn't but... he very divorced from, <laughs> from Demi Moore? Or it would not surprise me. I thought he was, but yeah, I mean, you know, the roast of Bruce Willis and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, it's just it's a yeah. sad career for someone who like at this point. I don't think he's, like, struggling to find himself, but he's still able to straddle being an action hero and being a comedy star. And he's yeah. still very, very good at that comedy stuff. And it's a shame that the comedy 
doesn't come out more often because like I mean, really, is Moonrise Kingdom his last kind of like pure comedy role? Uh, I mean, he's in the Lego Movie too. That's he, that's, but he plays himself in a cameo yeah. playing John <laughs> McClane. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, I haven't watched several of these, but even in stuff like Cop Out and Red, yes, they have like yeah. tinges of comedy, but he's playing the kind of the straight action hero in them, as opposed to Moonrise Kingdom, which is a character who is funny. Rock the Casbah. I don't even know what that is. Directed by Barry Levinson, stars Bill Murray, talent manager of the USO show, Kate Hudson, Bruce Willis. Sounds kind of alright. Um, 7% of Rotten Tomatoes. Amazing. <laughs> Carry on. Uh, but yeah, like Bruce Willis. I mean, I think he's so good in this movie. I do think yeah. he's hot in a way that I like. Like, not in a, not in a hot enough way for you to kind of go like, yeah, yes, I understand why Meryl fucking Streep and Goldie Horn are fighting over him. But yeah. hot in a way that's kind of going like, yeah, no, it's weirdly doing it for me. I don't. Hey, I think it is. It is disinterest. It is rage. It is strong morals at the end. Like his big his big monologue when they're trying to drug him, and he's he's like renouncing them both and alcoholism. And then, like, <laughs> giving, turning down immortality and ending up with this really nice life and everything. And I mean, like, for a long time, it's, like, very, like, these are three of the worst people in the world. <laughs> and, like, you know, you can't escape the fact that he did fully just leave Goldie Horn for Meryl Streep. But then, of the three, I guess, from that point on, I mean, he did murder her and was planning <laughs> to murder her. And then just murdered her in a different way. Whatever, they're all bad people. But yeah, that, that was the thing. Is like when I was watching this, I was very much of my mind where I was like, I love this. I love how camp it is. I love how technologically impressive it is. I really like this as kind of like a farewell to Robert Zemeckis' zany comedy section mm. before he gets bogged down in doing dramas. But I also know that like you do not react well when there is not a character to latch onto. And I and I was watching this kind of going like, these are awful people. Like all of them are awful. Yeah, but and this is a this is a comedy. Like I don't need rich characters in my comedy. <laughs> so so just from that, so when did you see this for the first time? Oh like, my so god, I don't know. Um a very long time ago <laughs> on television probably. I think like God, like Channel 5 used to do, like, it's Bruce Willis season and we're going to show you every one of his movies in consecutive Sundays. And it probably popped up there. And the, the scene where he murders her and she stands back up, I feel I've seen like a dozen times in my life just because I feel it's a film that's on television a lot. I feel it's a clip that goes around a lot. And, but I, I couldn't tell you when I first saw it. I guess the first time I like properly, properly watched it would have been like... I don't know, six or seven years ago. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, it's, that is a great shot of like the him on the phone to Goldie Yes. Horn. And just in the background, just her slow, like, just shambling across to him, yeah. Right, Goldie Horn. Yeah. Um, this is sort of the end for her. Yeah. Like, because obviously in the wake of this, her mother has been diagnosed with cancer. She kind of steps away from acting for four years to go take care of her mother, who dies in 1994. But, like, an end of an insane kind of, like, hot career for Goldie Hawn, as well as also being, like, one of the greatest progenitors of hot actors <laughs> yeah. in the world. Yeah. Um, like, she can act, but, like, it was like, look at this really hot lady, let's put her in stuff. <laughs> 
I mean, it is interesting because obviously she, I mean, the, the one thing I saw her in very recently is Swing Shift, which is notorious in terms that she kind of grappled control of that from Jonathan Demme. And like, it's well known that there's like a cut of the movie that Goldie Horn detested that is actually like a really fucking good like use of her that just doesn't get to, didn't get to come out and all the rest of it. And it's a real shame, but like, that was the last thing I saw her in. But then watching her, it's just like, God, she really was like just a goddamn movie star yeah yeah just an honest to goodness movie star not and, like and not like famous for being famous because like she i think she was a legit charismatic performer and everything like like old school movie star in a way that very few people are these days yeah i mean she she has got an oscar for this point she got it well she had an oscar from 1969 so basically one of her first film roles she gets an oscar for very similar to to meryl streep and it's just a shame that nowadays she mostly just does like the Christmas Chronicles movies with her husband. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say I'm, I was bummed to learn the Elvis impersonator is not him because uh, <laughs> he has played Elvis many a time, including I believe rumored in Forrest Gump that that is him playing Elvis. <laughs> but yeah, a missed opportunity there. But yeah, she she just she just hangs out with with her hot husband and and they raise their hot daughter who's like fifty years old and I'm talking about her like she's a tiny child. I mean, and their hot son. Yes. Oh, yes. Who's <laughs> having his moment as a right-wing darling? Not you know him, but yeah. <laughs> Watch Lodge Forty Nine, people. Please. Yes, and if you really, 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 really like John Walker, you should be on a list. Anyway. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the big three, and like why I say it's like a really interesting point because it's kind of you have Zemeckis moving away from comedies, Meryl Streep dipping her toe back into comedy, Bruce Willis not yet super mega star that he becomes later in the nineties, and Goldie Hawn kind of at the tail end of her career. Mm. So it is just this, like, fascinating hodgepodge. And, of course, then you have the fact that, again, this is the Jurassic Park team that go off to do all kinds of things yeah. from this, this like, crazy special effects nonsense. And that's before we get into the fact that this movie is so incredibly problematic. Yeah, starting right away with uh, Goldie Horn in that fat suit, like, <laughs> and, and in, an, in an asylum and, and yeah... So I, I watched this with my partner. So when I watched this last year for watching all the Zemeckis movies, like I watched this one on my own. I was like, it's hugely fun. I don't think he'll enjoy it. And she was like, why is that? I'm like, it's got some problematic stuff. And then the moment Goldie <laughs> shows up in that fat suit, she looked at me and said like, got really, it. this, is, this is what they're doing. <laughs> and yeah. like the way she picks up like the yogurt and just kind of like shoves it in her mouth or whatever uh-huh. it is that she's eating. And I do think it's funny. Like, she still plays it well, yeah. not the fat suit. The fat suit isn't funny in any way, shape, or form. It's so hard to do that kind of stuff, and it's such a big running trend in, like, the 90s where you even have, like, on Friends, they put Courtney Cox oh, yeah. in the fat this, suit. This was and the it, height of comedy for a good decade, is what if people a thin in fat suits. Was, what if a thin person was fat? Yeah. Isn't this hilarious? Yeah. And, like, again, the second worst part of Endgame is let's put Hemsworth in a fat suit. And obviously yeah. they managed to wring an actually like emotionally resonant storyline out of that, but it still very much is like... I'm really so old. mad at them because it is... The kernel of a poignant concept is there if you focus more on the fact that he's big as a side effect of him abusing himself with food rather than, ha, you've got like, like cheese whiz for blood or whatever. Because they have to get in their fat jokes, because it's the Disney machine, and that's the most gentle form of comedy for the Midwest. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and it's a shame, and it's obviously like this movie gets through it real quick, and I do love the scene where like she's just hanging on the door, <laughs> not just the bit where she's like, yeah, just like watching 
<laughs> like Meryl Streep die over and over again in the movie and just mm. got this like huge smile on her face. So are the police dragging her away because she's escaped from the asylum? No, it's because she hasn't paid her rent. They're literally okay. evicting her. Right, okay. I so, I normally just I see that fat suit and I just kind of like awkwardly pull up my collar and look to the floor for a couple of minutes generally. It's wild how this movie how quickly this movie gets to it because obviously you have the scene Meryl Streep doing the Broadway performance they yeah. go visit her and you find out that Goldie Horn has to introduce all of her boyfriends to Meryl Streep to parade them and look I'm and winning just, just to make sure that she also won't steal them from her and they do you know they get some good mileage out of this a couple of times these smash cuts from I have no interest in her and then you cut to their wedding <laughs> which, which again great I love Zemeckis' comedy sensibilities, and it's it's why I'm sad that he doesn't do as much of it. And again, like it's very funny watching her react to the to the death. It's ver- it's very funny of her when in the mental institution, and they're all like sat there going like, "Shut the fuck up about that." Like, like, yeah, <laughs> Helen, Helen, what do you want to talk about today? I want to talk about Madeline Ashton, and everyone's just like, "No, oh my god, no!" And and like the doctor that literally turns to to Helen and just kind of goes like. Right, you need to annihilate her from... And she's like, yes, I do. I do need to annihilate her. <laughs> Off I go. Yeah. And then you smash cut again seven years later and she's lost the fat suit. Obviously because you find out mm-hmm. later on that she's taken the um, the like Fountain of Youth the potion. Ro- the Rossellini sex drug, yes. Yeah. But it's still, like, the movie basically goes like, it, it jumps 14 years in about 10 minutes. I know, and-, and it's really jarring if you're not fully paying attention. <laughs> again, broadly, very positive thoughts. Even saying it's my third favourite 90s Zemeckis, uh, you know, I would take his third over a lot of people's first. For me, there's like a 20 to 25 minute stretch that is incredibly enjoyable and it takes too long getting there. As in all the special effects? From the murder, basically. But I mean, I guess the few minutes before that, like the planning of the murder and then, you know, taking her to the hospital and the aftermath and everything like that, like... And if not for the fact that you got these three people, I would I would call the first sort of forty five minutes to an hour outright boring. But you got these three, and uh, they make it work. <laughs> it's wild to watch it and kind of see all the little touches that Zemeckis does to make it like just visually impressive whilst you're doing it. Like the yeah. the shot of like Meryl Streep waking waking up in the morning and like the maid having to like compliment her on her beauty, <laughs> but it's all being filmed in the mirror and whatnot. So the yeah. Just like that, the, the mirror shit that he goes on to like perfect in contact and stuff like that. He is yeah. very fascinated in technology and in just kind of like visual trickery. And so the movie, as you say, like the three of them boy it along whilst he is doing an awful lot of legwork for not that much reason. Because obviously, like, there's a big long scene when Meryl Streep goes to have her blood circulated, whatever it is that she gets to have done. <laughs> and then the the creepy like plastic surgeon is just kind of like with his eye as the first hint of like the weird shit that's going to go on if you do this yes and um, then his his very breasty assistant <laughs> and everything yeah like all of that it's like i mean meryl's making it work for me she's dragging me along i guess it perks up when i mean not <laughs> for the most <laughs> obvious reason but when rosalini comes in you're like okay what the fuck's going on but when it's just like, look at these people sniping at each other at parties, it's like this is fine. But and I, I do like I do like when you like first see him go from surgeon to like doing makeup on on a, on a corpse and stuff like that. 
I do like that because obviously Bruce Willis starts off as a like highly talented do- doctor and eventually ends up as basically just a person who who makes dead bodies look better. And mm-hmm. the scene where he's talking to uh, Mary Ellen Trainor and she just kind of goes, "I don't know how you do it," and he's just like, "I'm going to tell you." And he goes, "Like I use paint. I painted your your mother's corpse." <laughs> yeah, he found the right blend of of paints, or does he use mannequin paints, or I don't know, who something just, like that. Just like he's so callous with it because yeah, like, he yeah. just doesn't give a shit at this point. Like he's fully an alcoholic. He hates his yeah. his wife. I like, do. Was... I do like like him emerging from his room. And her being like, oh god, what's what's gotten you out of bed? And he's like, work. <laughs> like, he's not happy about it. This movie is kind of notorious for, like, being kind of completely mangled and cut up and, like, very yes. different to... Because obviously, there are, there are, you watch the trailer even nowadays, and you're like, oh, there's just entire sections of this movie that I can't fathom where this would happen. Yeah. But, like, there's an entire sequence of Meryl, after she's died, being put into the freezer. Mm-hmm. And like being dragged around like that, I'm like, I cannot see the scenes of where you would fit Meryl into a freezer in this movie. Yeah, yeah, and like he changed the ending. I mean, he says he made it less optimistic, or or, or like it was too nice, or something. But it's like it's the broad strokes are the same. It's just you're being told instead of shown that you know originally they find him and he, he's blissfully happy with someone he ran away with, and instead it's like they're at his funeral and. The, the eulogy is like, oh, he did so many amazing things. And it's like, what's really the difference here other than he's dead? And then, yeah, Zemeckis felt a need to edit it to make it a little bit snappier. Probably could have done with just a little smidge more in the front half, but, you know. I mean, I mean you could probably argue that maybe if this was 90 minutes, it would be, like, a little bit better. But, like, yeah. I think, like, it at least it's not two hours. No, no, no. Like, Breezy watch, easy watch. It is a breezy, easy one. Isabella Rossellini. Uh-huh. She gives Meryl Streep the potion. She to does. Make everything great. She is Dear not wearing clothes. <laughs> she is not wearing clothes. Dear Lord, Isabella Rossellini. I like that this was literally the period of her career where she was professionally hot. <laughs> like, a very interesting career. And like, yeah, just, just this sort of five-year streak where it's just, you're just really fucking sexy, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, the point where, like, what four years after this, she's just in Friends as herself, as like I know as Ross's number one celebrity crush, and like nowadays people are like, who the fuck is this lady? <laughs> um, because I guess she's done so many things. She hasn't like I feel like she intentionally got out of acting, or like is very choosy with her projects, or does a lot of Italian stuff. Um, yeah, it's still a, it's still a, a meaty career, but it's definitely like she is not. The kind of the the household name that she seemingly was, yeah. When yeah. she's working, but even then, she's like, who's she working with? Oh, she's working with fucking David Lynch and Blue Velvet. I and mean, like, Blue Velvet is like you know, <laughs> the one. <laughs> yeah, and obviously, but... and obviously, a, a, a series of like incredibly well-known men that she's been involved with, like married to Martin Scorsese for three years. Mm. Um, she was involved with David Lynch for five years, Gary Oldman for three years, like yeah. She just took a series of lovers across the world and, and was just hot and, like, good for her. <laughs> Again, just in- insanely hot in this movie. Yeah. Like, the poster is, is, is like, 80% her, and then you get these tiny little squares of the three giant actors you got to be in it. And, you know, sex sells. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, her, her... Fabio plays one of her bodyguards. <laughs> what sure, more could you want? He sure does. Uh, her many, her many uh, boy toys. Yeah, but I like that, you know, she, she writes down how much it is and Meryl's like, fuck off. And then she, like, just does it. She gives her, like, the tiniest drop on her hand. The, the de-aging... Pretty well done. <laughs> the last thing is because it's not de-aging though, isn't well, it? Well, okay, sure, but you know the the sequence yeah. where she de-ages. Because I think that's that's the thing that you forget is kind of like because we're so used to Meryl Streep looking like she does nowadays. When she just looks younger than she does nowadays, you kind of go like, oh yeah, that's fine. That's just how Meryl looks. Mm-hmm. And then what the movie does is it just goes like, now we're just gonna. Meryl is in makeup for that, like, the 14 years in the future section. Yeah. yeah. And then they just take the makeup away. Yeah. Um, But just the way in which they go about it, and they've got, like, animatronic butt lifting going on. (laughs) (laughs) Something going on in her her bra and everything. It's like, I'm not entirely sure how you did this logistically, but (laughs) this ended up looking good. I mean, it's not a point. I just love... Her delivery of like tits like rocks that she gives <laughs> to the yeah to that lady. Yeah, it's funny to me that like I mean obviously the name and and the scenes everyone remembers are what they are, but like that the impetus for all of this is like a miracle de aging thing, and it mostly goes uncommented that she's <laughs> like Bruce Willis is like did you did you get a haircut? And it's <laughs> like she looks like twenty years younger. Like, I mean they make the big deal of it when Goldie Horn is revealed. But they just pass that off as, oh, she's just gotten in shape and she's a successful novelist now. Well, well that's the thing, is because obviously the whole point is, like, Madeline and, and Ernest both are like, oh, yeah, we saw her, like, seven years ago and she was, like, fat in an institution. Ha 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 ha, isn't that hilarious? Of course. Mental health, the second funniest thing behind being fat. Yeah, and, like, you know, it becomes clear that, that Helen got the same thing done. But I just find it funny that the big... Not the call to action, but you know, the, in the hero's journey, the stage where Meryl de-ages, it kind of is lost in everything that ensues after that. And like, you know, she's got the young lover who like is banging someone his own age and and stuff like that. And it's like, I, I think that's a subplot that was like fairly heftily cut down. I think right. that was like a big part of the. Was she gonna like cut. show up at his house again and he was gonna fall all over her or something? I genuinely don't know, but I do think that like that is like a section of the movie that is like right. notorious for having just been like cut down to nothing. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, again, all it does is it just goes like, look, she's she's sleeping with someone else because her and. Bruce Willis don't love each other anymore. Nah. Like it does, it does its job and then gets out, and and you get a bit more TNA from the like the girl in his room in the background. Yeah, gratuitous butt shot for no reason. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it, yeah, it's just funny to me that like lost in the fact that it makes you fucking immortal. This miracle potion that makes you look like you're thirty or or twenty five or whatever. Yeah. Isabel Rossellini going like I'm seventy years old. Yeah, yeah, which you know sticks with you way more than like what you see happen to Meryl. Yeah, I do. I do also like when Meryl like guesses her age and she's like thirty. <laughs> I think she's yeah. I think she says like thirty eight or something. Like that. <laughs> and it's like Jesus. I mean, uh, twenty five. <laughs> that's I mean that's what I really enjoy about like both Meryl and Goldie is they're so bitchy and cutting and she's really is catty a... yeah it, it, it's really surprising to see like her just even her like swearing a lot can sometimes like be a bit titillating because it's like you know I, I, yeah i guess 
she just has this unfair reputation as being just just a very grown up actor. And we talked about it in adaptation where like she's being horny and she's got her tits out and like is this just actually Meryl naked? Maybe who knows? Um, yeah, so it's, it is really funny to see her like. I can see my ass and like tits like rocks and all that sort of shit. Yeah. And and it's like that's what so much of the enjoyment of the kind of special effect sequence is, is the fact that like, yes, it is sort of very like Tom and Jerry Looney Tunes violence against the two of them, where like Meryl and Goldie are like breaking each other's necks and like <laughs> legs and yeah. forcing holes through the other other one. But like at the end of the day, they're still being very catty. And, like, there's yeah. still, like, verbal barbs between the two of them that yeah. kind of, like, really underline it. And that's obviously a huge reason why this has got such a strong cult following. It's mm. why, like, I think almost every year there is, like, a someone on a version of Drag Race will do, like, a Death Becomes Her inspired something. Right, like, right. It, it's so huge in the drag community because, obviously, so much of drag is that hyper-femininity. Mm. And this movie is very much that. It's like, this is not how women act. Like, <laughs> this is this is just stunningly two straight male screenwriters stumbled across, like, their sexist view of women unlocks something in the mind of, like, a bunch of gay people, like, 20 years down the line. Yeah, yeah. And, like, we, we, at this point, you've, like, hit the point in the movie where I'm like, okay, here we go. Like, Goldie Hawn and Bruce Willis, like, plotting the murder a lot and like you know seeing it play out and then pouring a comical amount of alcohol over the car and kicking out the jack and everything I, and then yeah, t- I, I love i love everything about how Zemeckis does this stuff because i even watched some of his tales from the crypt episodes which are very mm. much done in the style of this section of the movie where like they're just doing this like highly the, even the whole shtick of like here's a flashback or like here's a vision of what they're going to do and we'll have a character say something and then we'll also have the character in the in the section voice it themselves and the exact yeah same, like, like, like you move time. you move between narration and talking in real time and then back out again and yeah but it's yeah. also heightened in camp and yeah, like yeah yeah oh she's had a bit too much to drink and then you cut away to like the the side of the car and it's just got 25 <laughs> bottles of, of like vodka that have been drunk that evening and it's like oh god she would be dead we've like, seen someone going towards the edge <laughs> yeah yeah and then like that he just completely botches the plan that she she's teetering on the edge of those stairs for so long and then he just so... gives her that little nudge and I well, love that that's called back at the end as well <laughs> it's all because she just can't contain herself she's so bitchy and so catty that like even in this life and death situation and he's taken a bit too long she can't like the flip that Meryl does in this movie like two or three times mm. when she's going like please save me please save me oh my god hurry up and yeah, she's, yeah, like, oh, yeah. she's so good at that and yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it, it's it's the it's the devil wears Prada thing of like you know you can't even save me right or whatever. <laughs> I think her bouncing down the stairs is is a bad practical effect, but yeah, like when she's rising up in the background and shambling towards him and just how genuinely terrified of her he is throughout. And like that that's a nice bit where like you make a movie like this today and the person just freaks out for 20 seconds and then gets over it and it's like right to the end he finds them it's wrong you know they've defied nature and he just wants well clear of them and i I do like that that becomes an undercurrent because obviously like the whole shtick is like you can't tell people that you've done this Mm -hmm. and so when they take 
Merrill to hospital and Sidney Polak's like <laughs> looking over and stuff like that. And like he's just like, huh, this is weird. Like he throws away his his stethoscope because he doesn't think it's working. I just like that it starts even more subtle than that. Like it doesn't hurt when I do this, and he's like bending it so far back. And it's like, well, you have a severely broken wrist, <laughs> and like and even Bruce Willis is like, doctor, she's on death's door and stuff like that. And even just the, the kicker to that scene is obviously like Bruce Willis goes looking to find like some help or anything like that because uh, or just goes looking for some help and then all of a sudden like he finds like someone being treated with like defibrillator and it's the doctor who's obviously had a heart attack in between like leaving the room because he's, he just yeah. can't believe what he's seen. Yeah. yeah, and then they just take her down to the morgue because you know she's passed out, she's got she, her heart's not beating and she's stone cold. Like, yeah, down to the morgue you go. And then the movie just kind of becomes a special effects showcase. Like, um, just yeah. um, are there any shots that you want to call out? Because it very um, much is. Just... My favorite is when Meryl throws that like a stick through the hole and was like, <laughs> "Aha! Oh, damn it!" And then she sits down and it goes back through her the other way, kind of thing. I feel that that one is was the, really well done. <laughs> the exact same shot for me is that one where she sits down and the stick. And obviously, like when she sits down. I don't know how they did that, but then mm-hmm. the later shots, like the the stick is kind of like off camera, so you can tell it's just someone like yeah, they've attached yeah, it to her yeah, dress yeah. or something. But like that initial shot of her sitting down and just going perfectly through her chest, I'm like, I mean, I see, I have to assume it's just a green screen or something. But it's, yeah, it I mean, every now like... and then you can see like right, this is a head that's been put on a body kind of thing. But for the most part, it looks really good, and you know, you have the wackier shots like Meryl's neck breaking all the way backwards and like water gushing out of the the wound in Goldie Horn and stuff like that but i mean um, meryl's head is so funny in this like the scene where her and goldie are having a conversation and her head just keep bobbing forward because yeah she's got, that, like, i was gonna say like when it's bent all the way back it's like i mean that doesn't look great but when she's put it back and it's just kind of wobbling like like she's a jack-in-the-box or whatever it's like this looks really good how did you do this just a bombardment of these great things and like i think there's another thing like you see things like this and you expect with the immortality comes the healing. And instead it's like, you'll survive. It's up to you how you physically patch yourself up. You know, it's like Dead Wife in American Gods, where it's like, hmm, my flesh is rotting. What do I do about this? <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it, it's so good. And, and like right to the end and, you know, that, oh, this man we've been fighting over and actually, you know, and they make up. And it's like, oh, let's finally bury the hatchet. And then he's, like, off the hook almost, where it's like, you're no longer an object in our little play. And then it's like, wait, he is a mortician. <laughs> <laughs> who can who does make up for, for dead bodies, and obviously, like, he's been spray-painting Meryl to make her look presentable. Something like that. But that, I mean, that's the other thing I do really enjoy about this, is that, like, it was never actually a fight over him. Oh, God, no. No. It's it's just the two of them just were insanely jealous of each other and then eventually gets to a point where it's like, well, what's the point in being jealous of each other? We're now immortal and hot, so therefore... <laughs> for now. <laughs> for, like, for now we're both immortal and hot, so there's nobody for us to be fighting. And then it's just like, but because they're so catty and awful mm. to each other, like, when they go to the party to try and convince Ernest to become immortal with them, like... <laughs> No one else there is having the same issues that they are. Nope. <laughs> They're just like, quietly being dead famous people. You've got, like, Jim Morrison and Marilyn Monroe and, of course, Elvis and James Dean. And I was like, obviously James Franco, 
far too young, but he did play James Dean uh, in something. He was renowned in his youth for looking a bit like James Dean. I was like, is that fucking James Franco somehow in a time machine? It's like, it's just some dude who looks like James Dean. But yeah. Um, and just, yeah, that uniquely they have gotten themselves into this mess. <laughs> And everyone else is oblivious and having a nice time. It's like, how do they select the people? Is it just people who are willing to put down this money to look beautiful forever? But they've just picked the two people who, the only reason why they want to look beautiful forever is because of a unique spite against one other person. Yeah. I mean, and, and obviously like the, the, the amount of celebrities in this very much plays into something that is very recurrent throughout Zemeckis' career, like even down to his debut movie being literally like a movie about the Beatles are playing somewhere where he, he does this thing where like let's shoot a movie about the Beatles or the like Beatles being in it but obviously we have to have impersonators doing the voice in the scene mm-hmm. and he gets very much into that hole with, with Forrest Gump obviously with so many celebrities and like the interpolation of like actual footage and having Tom Hanks walk through it mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it like yeah, in, in, interesting seeing like all these little points in his career where like he's obviously got these things that he obviously really really enjoys mm. and a big part of that is kind of because all of these famous people were like 50s 60s presumably when he was young teen teenager kind of age yeah and like you know i mean it it wasn't possible i mean you know you can get all the impersonators you want but like forrest gump particularly it's like whoa they've like put tom hanks next to actual richard nixon or whatever it must have been like, oh my goodness, look at this. This is aren't films magical? <laughs> but you know, yeah, you've got you've got Bruce Willis just like, I don't want to live forever, thank you. As he like, I, yeah, like the, the only person with a sensible opinion in this movie is him, kind of going like, no, this sounds awful and horrible. What if I want to die? Yeah, yeah. As he gets himself in this comical, <laughs> like hanging over a, a precipice, off the edge of a guttering that came loose. And then he, he he tries to die and lands in a swimming pool where people are trying to fuck. <laughs> and then just slips off into the night. <laughs> yeah, and then gets away. And then we get the final kicker, which is Madeline and Helen basically being like an old married couple come to visit his funeral. Yeah. Laugh derisively at like the things that he says and the lessons he's learned about like how to actually love someone and... <laughs> And be in love. And then just, oh no, we've forgotten our spray paint that we need to make ourselves look beautiful. And Tripping on the, it, yeah. Yeah, what, what is the line that the priest says that makes both of them turn back to like, oh no. Oh, oh he found the secret to eternal life, yeah. Yes, he found the secret to eternal life. And they both turn around and go, and just like, laugh so derisively yeah, at, yeah. at what that is. Ah, and then, we have real eternal life. Down the stairs we fall. Down the stairs we fall. Like, well, one this, of us is going to fall. <laughs> I mean, they take off their, their like, veils and just the, the awful job that they've done on keeping each other looking good over the years because they don't have the talent. And yeah. Oh, that reminds me, I do like the line, you paint my ass, I'll paint yours, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then they just shatter into pieces, and then... Okay, okay, again, a talking stu- head. Yeah. A, a stupidly impressive, like, thing to have done with, is, like, Goldie Horn's head, like, spinning around. Yeah on its crown, and then just both of them still talking. I'm like, again, how are you doing this in 1992? And I would love to be behind the scenes, even if, as Meryl says, it probably is stupidly bored to watch them, like, set it up and then realise that they are, like, a fraction off in terms of what they need to do and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. And, like, and you take that forward and you have Emily Blunt saying, why would I want to do a Marvel movie? Or 
the dude from Blade saying, I'm embarrassed for Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, again, it's fun. There, there's a good 30 to 30 minutes or so there where it's just, look at them having fun, look at this technical marvel. I wish some of how you got there was a little bit more fun. But, I mean, I mean I, I'm under no like no illusions that this isn't going to be like near the bottom of the pile when I'm doing the <laughs> rankings at the end of this. Like this is not a top like 50 movie for the decade. It is just one that I have a huge amount of affection for. Yeah, yeah. that fits very solidly into this. And also, I do think like the brief that we did have for this series was mm. let's have some fun with this. And so. <laughs> There are more comedies in this list than there, there have are. been in the, in the last two. Genre movies. Remember genres, kid? Uh, that, 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 that's the other thing I want to say. is like It's it's so refreshing to watch this. It's like, when was yeah. the last time you watched an actual out-and-out comedy movie that had this much of a budget? Yeah, and, and had like good people in it who aren't just perennial comedy people or like... Or it's, or it's the other way, where it's like a shocking, like, oh my god, look at... Colin Farrell's doing prosthetics and and you know like <laughs> yeah I mean I mean so my friend who does Truly Happy Madison podcast uh, I <laughs> guess is on for their Paul Blart episode they 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 did Pixels the week that we recorded this episode oh, and <laughs> and and like you look at that and you go like oh look it's a comedy movie with a budget that's doing this kind of thing but obviously it's it's done for far more cr- like creatively bankrupt reasons yeah. than this is where like this is just this is a director at the forefront of this technology pushing to make a movie with this kind of like stuff behind it and nowadays you couldn't find someone who would go like you know what let's make a high concept comedy movie that's yeah. only going to really play in countries with like i mean in the west i mean it's knives out isn't it which we talked about when we did that of like God, they don't make films like this very often with that are pushed this hard kind of thing. It's like it's either tiny little indie things, or it's like oh, it's the new Wes Anderson, it's the new whoever. <laughs> yeah, I would just I would just love for more. Yeah, like it. I wish or I long for a period of time where it isn't the forefront of technology isn't being pushed by superhero movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it just it's just again a, the death of a bygone era of cinema that is making me nostalgic and i mean i and again i'm under no illusions like the, the first four movies we've covered on this podcast have been like hugely influential and i just have affection for this and mm-hmm. uh, a great deal of respect for the craft and i just find it a huge amount of fun yeah and and it's good to do your cult lgbt classics at points as well it is and like i i think this is one of the more this is an incredibly interesting thing to have existed like you said it's it's the end of goldie horn it's Bruce Willis still taking off. It's Meryl in the middle kind of thing. <laughs> you know, Zemeckis' incredible run, for better or worse, how it ultimately ends up. But, you know, I think even if you discount some of his duds, it's a hell of a filmography for him. And uh, I do not regret watching all of his movies, and it's yeah. been fun to revisit it, even with the kind of, like, the last 20 years of his career and the mocap failures that he's done and just... <laughs> The, the weirdness of like again because he is someone who's still pushing technology even nowadays but he's doing it for things like welcome to marwin <laughs> which is like a weird like mocap again like he's integrating his mocap technology into it but it is for such a like weirdly artificial reason in comparison to this mm. where like i mean 
when this came out, this movie got kind of savage by the critics. It's got 53% on Rotten Tomatoes. Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert both gave it a thumbs down, saying that it lacked substance or character depth. I'm like, well, I don't need those things from this movie. I don't need to have, like, an in-depth reason for, like, Goldie Horn killed Meryl Streep's cat, and that's why they hate each other their entire life. I don't need that, like, pathos yeah. or anything like that. It's just... It's fun to have two I mean, actresses at the top of their game being bitchy and having fun. How many comedies did Ebert like? You know, I mean, actually, I think weirdly, towards the end of his life, he was giving some pretty suspicious thumbs up to some things. But, you know, at the, around this point, how many comedy films was he really like going, yeah, this is great. Everyone should go see this. <laughs> it, it's an interesting one to have podcasted about. Probably I'm, more so than Forrest Gump would have been, or Contact, to be honest, even if I, mean, I think Forrest Gump would have been a really interesting conversation. It just would have been more akin to like the, the Florida Project episode, where I'm just kind of like, why, why is this happening? Because <laughs> look at him go, look at him run. Some fruit company or something. Um, maybe, maybe we just do a Forrest Gump episode, because I would actually would be interested in talking about that with you. I mean, you know, I... At one point, I thought Forrest Gump was phenomenal, and then he grew up a little bit, and I walked it back a smidge. But I still think it's just wholesome and just pleasant oh, to it's, view. It's definitely not wholesome. It's kind of wholesome in it in its way <laughs> for for a stretch. Yeah, I think this... not being American helps, where it's like all of this is just stuff I've read about in books, so I don't have to think about the ramifications of the politics that much. I mean, it's, it's still wild that that movie opens up with a scene in which they reveal Tom Hanks in a Ku Klux Klan hood. <laughs> yes. Yes, that like, happens. Like everyone's favourite actor, Tom Hanks, yeah. is in a Klan outfit, playing one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan. Look. look. Forrest Gump is named after. Look. <laughs> okay alright fair enough your honour I retract I retract my point which probably segues quite nicely to next week yeah so this was episode on Death Becomes Her next week we're still in 1992 we are discussing our old friend Aaron Sorkin yes uh, <laughs> at last a few good men um, I'm so excited for Rob Ryan the conversation dear lord what a wild commodity <laughs> that man has <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, we can litigate Sorkin again at last. I mean, I feel we almost you almost talk around this, him in the social network. But yeah, this is, this is, this is well and truly Sorkin, for better or worse. Yeah. Where is this, where is this in his career? I'm just looking this up now. I'm sure we will litigate Sorkin for a while. Mm. This is his first film credit. There's yep. a few good men. Yeah, he turned his play into a movie. And it's also a point where Rob Ryan is kind of more of a journeyman, so like, but also the very tail end of his like insane run is just lots of context and mm -hmm. Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. So, yeah. Are you going to bust out an impression next week? <laughs> the derision of that. No, not now, I'm not. <laughs> okay. Just checking. Okay, wow, okay, all right. Note taken. I will start with fewer impressions. Do you remember that really good one I did of uh, Matt in The Leftovers? <laughs> anyway. Oh, so, Matthew. Yes. Tell me, will there be movies? Uh, you and I, Benjamin, just like the ladies in this movie, will be doing this for 51 years. You review my movies, I'll review yours, and then we'll just shatter into pieces and die. Bye. Bye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I did it for so long.